Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have banded together to battle evil. They are the heroes of World War II, as well as their sons and daughters, protégés and godchildren. Two True Freaks presents The Tales Tales of the Justice Justice Society Society of America. America! And welcome back to Tales of the Justice Society of America. My name is Jorge Sanchez, and with me as always is the Duke of York. <laughs> York. <laughs> or uh, I'm Michael Bailey, and he's Scott Gardner, and you're not. So, I don't know why I, I always like go to Jorge one, Sanchez. I don't even know a Jorge Sanchez. <laughs> it's a good name for you, though. <laughs> Why? Because it has like horror <laughs> in it. Is that what you're... I'm? I'm now feeling cut. Speak podcast, Jorge. Podcast. Actually, not so much anymore. But uh, once upon a time, if you asked me, I would. I would come on your show. So <laughs> that sounds disgusting. Anyway. <laughs> oh, I can't believe I said that. Um, I can. What kind of preamble do we have for this one? Not really anything. If if you uh, suddenly hear what sounds like uh, my wife swearing in the background, that's because Rachel has discovered this new game we found in the five dollar <laughs> bin at Walmart, and she uh, she tends to get very vocal in her upsetness at games, um, and she tends to swear really loudly when she does that. So if in the middle of this you hear like. Um, that's, that's probably my wife. So, <laughs> what game is it? Um, hey Rachel, what's that game called? Lost in Shadows. Hmm. Never heard of it. Uh, it was supposed to be twenty bucks, but somebody put it in a thing that said five dollars, so we got it for five dollars. There you go. That works. So, uh, uh, we're, we're we're wrapping up. Together, we're wrapping up the two Star Wars Lego games before we start the Lego Pirates of the Caribbean. So, I'm actually looking forward to that Lego, uh, the next Lego Batman because Superman's going to be in it. You know, I've never actually played any of those Lego games. I've watched my kids play, you know, hours and hours, but I've never played any of them myself. That one I might have to make an exception. You should play the Batman one, especially since the Elfman score is for the first film is throughout the entire game. Yeah, I got a, so. I got kind of burned out on that though by by listening to my kids play. <laughs> I loved it. I I I am looking forward to the next one mainly because Superman, like you said, is going to be in it. Uh, our good friend J. David Weeder actually sent me an early birthday present uh, in the form of the Lex Luthor Lego armor Lego set that they recently put out. So. Um, that kind of ties into the game in a really tangential way. So pretty soon I'll be putting together a uh, Lex Luthor power armor and having a little Lego Superman near him. So Very cool. Yes. 
You just reminded me that I totally forgot last episode. I was going to uh, to shout out um, early uh, an early birthday wish to you, even though we're recording it well before your birthday. I knew that that episode was was going to be the last one that we would do together before your actual birthday, and I forgot all about doing that. So I'll do it now, and it'll be belated birthday uh, greetings or wishes by the time the episode actually airs, although your birthday still hasn't happened yet at recording time, so that's kind of strange, but one way or the other, happy birthday. Thank you, sir. Uh, I actually get one this year. It's it's really nice. (laughs) So this is what, ninth, right? Yes, I am nine. (laughs) That's cool. My wife is a pedophile. Good for her. And society accepts it because there's that double standard. See, I gotta, I, I've, I've, I've just gotta watch what I say on these shows. I was gonna say we need more of them, but no, that's just beyond <laughs> the boundaries of good taste. But, <laughs> good taste? We have good taste. Well, you know. So, well, we do, but no one seems to agree with it. So, <laughs> to heck with that. So what do we got this week, sir? We've yeah, got... before I say anything else oh. that'll wind me up in jail or out of a job or something, <laughs> let's just get into the comic proper here. Yeah, well, we, we, we are covering this week, June 1984. Mm-hmm. And the first one is all yours, sir. Sweet. This is All Star Squadron number 34, the June 1984 issue, as Mike just said. Cover on this bad boy is by Rick Hoberg and Jerry Ordway, and it's depicting a crazy-eyed tsunami creating, well, she's creating a tsunami that threatens to swamp Liberty Bell and Johnny Quick while Starman and Firebrand, they're kind of streaking to the rescue kind of thing in the sky. And uh, Neptune Perkins, I think he looks like he's trying to pull her hair myself. (laughs) Um, I have to be honest I'm not real crazy about this cover but that's mostly due to Tsunami just looks bizarre to me on this cover everybody else looks pretty good though but it also kind of looks vaguely like the Presto Magic's version of you know comic book (laughs) covers it looks like some of the heroes are just kind of stuck on as an afterthought you know Presto Magic All Star Squadron (laughs) makes the action come alive oh dude there should have been a Presto Magic's All Star Squadron that would have been awesome (laughs) no doubt Uh, let's see original cover price on this 75 cents we got Roy Thomas was the writer slash editor Rick Hoberg and Bill Collins were the artists. And every time one of us says Bill Collins, I feel like we should hear a Sue Sue Studio or something <laughs> in the background. But anyway, Billy, Billy, don't you lose my number? <laughs> uh, Gene D'Angelo, colorist, Buffalo Bill Cody was the letterer, and the story is entitled "The Wrath of Buffalo Sue. Bill um, Cody." Well, I, I thought we were sticking with up. Cody Starchild. Well, in one way or the other, it's fine by me. <laughs> So uh, out at sea, Firebrand and Johnny Quick streak through the sky to check out the mysterious periscope that they spotted at the end of the last issue. Accompanying the pair is the aquatic hero Neptune Perkins. He and Johnny Quick, they take pretty much an instant dislike to each other that carries on through the rest of the issue. And I like that a lot. Um, it happens primarily because Johnny's he's kind of a dick in this issue. You know, he's still smarting from his fight with uh, Liberty Bell last issue. 
and he kind of rides Neptune Perkins's ass in this whole story. And uh, I, I liked it. I, I, you know, it's added a little bit of, you know, something to the issue. But I really would have loved to have seen them have a little dust up, you know, an actual tussle between the two of them. How, maybe maybe it'll happen later. I don't remember. Um, anyway, the trio reaches the spot where they saw the periscope, but there's nothing there. So Perkins, who's best suited uh, of the three of these guys for this kind of work, he dives deep and he discovers sure enough there's a japanese sub lying in wait beneath the waves so johnny quick uh he gets all impatient you know he's all hot-headed that's kind of his stick and he decides to show up perkins and he dives down at super speed he blows past neptune perkins and he charges straight at the the uh, submarine the enemy vessel turns out to be booby trapped and johnny quick finds himself snared in some kind of a net Neptune Perkins tries to free him, but the net is rigged and it delivers a stunning electrical charge to the both of them. Unconscious, the two heroes are dragged inside the enemy submarine. Firebrand, sensing something is wrong, she goes looking for her friends, but she's not able to turn up anything. Later, aboard the sub, Johnny Quick and Neptune Perkins are revived and they're introduced to the captain of the Japanese sub, a man who has taken to the task of bombing the Santa Barbara oil refinery with zest because some years ago during peacetime, he had visited the refinery to pick up an oil shipment, but slipped and fell on his ass into a cactus patch and was laughed at by the locals. And now they must pay for this outrage. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, the specter spends his day holding earths to an X apart. Apparently, when he transported uh, Uncle Sam and the others to that other Earth, he rips open some space-time thingy that now thre- uh, threatens to merge the two Earths, a happenstance that would result in mutual annihilation of both planets. On Earth-X, Sam and the other Freedom Fighters are still reeling from last issue's cliffhanger in which our man turned up very much alive but strapped to a cannon barrel, courtesy of Baron Blitzkrieg. Hate it when that happens. <laughs> a fight breaks out in which the freedom fighters give it their all, but their all just isn't good enough against the Nazi Superman, and they are taken out. Our man, clearly not feeling well, still manages to goad the Baron into releasing him, promising him a good fight. But this is all just bravado. Denied his miracle pills for so long, the man of the hour is suffering all the serious withdrawal symptoms of a full-fledged drug addict. Back aboard the Japanese sub, Tsunami shows up, pissed because none of the Issei or Nisei sided with her last issue. Oh, and the little fact that she may have killed her own father. (laughs) The uh, sub surfaces and begins shelling a refinery, but a Gungan shield deflects all bombardment. It's the work of Starman and his amazing rod, and you can take that any way you like. Firebrand and Liberty Bell drop in on the uh, surface sub and try to rescue their pals, but the Japanese beat a hasty retreat neath the waves. Furious that his revenge has been denied him, Captain Cactus Ass orders Johnny Quick and Neptune Perkins killed, but before his men can fire, a mysterious beam shoots out and dissolves their weapons. It's Starman, Bell, and Firebrand. Somehow. 
And they uh, bust up the party, free Johnny and Neptune, and capture Tsunami, and are generally mopping up when a stray shot hits the wrong tank and the submarine is blown to smithereens. Belle surfaces, and thanks to her prodigious, I can't say that word, prodigious swimming skills, manages to drag the unconscious Johnny Quick to a nearby buoy where they cling for dear life. When Tsunami shows up, and shows off the real reason she is so named by whipping up a giant tidal wave to crush our heroes. Next issue, for Twin Earths to live, one all-star must die. And he's, he's kind of a red shirt, one would say. <laughs> one would say, yes. And I just realized that I totally forgot to bookmark my place in the uh, All-Star Companions. So let's see here. Okay, here we go. Okay, so All-Star Companion Volume 2 notes on this issue are... Was it one of the artists or letter Dave Cody Weiss who drew a tidal wave inside the letters of the word tsunami in the splash page title. Hmm. Does that make it a tidal wave? Oh, that's awful. That's terrible. What is he talking about? Who drew a tidal wave? If you look at the splash page Uh and the wrath of tsunami, there's a tidal wave drawn into the word tsunami. Yeah. Okay. I thought he was talking about the, uh, on the cover. Okay. Yep. You're right. Oh, that was a horrible pun. Uh, every All-Star Squadron title splash featured a quotation of some kind. In number 34, a line from a poem by the earlier Japanese Emperor mm-hmm. Mije, quoted by Emperor Hirohito in 1941 as War with the West drew near. Uh, why are waves and winds so unsettled nowadays? Uh, let's see. On the letters page, a reader from Down Under asks if the All-Stars uh, could make an appearance in Australia during the bombing of Darwin and so forth. Roy Thomas responds he wasn't able to work in a story about the Japanese attack on Port Darwin, Australia's Pearl Harbor, on uh, February 19th, 1942, but did mention it in number 31. I don't remember that. Do you remember that? Not off the top of my head. Uh, the letters page features a long letter arguing the view that FDR knew about the Pearl Harbor attack in advance. Roy Thomas, having read most of the books written on the subject over the years, feels that, at the very least, the jury is still out on that matter. I actually read that in the letters page and was thinking about maybe uh, bringing that up, but I, I think this covers that well enough. But uh, it was an interesting point that the writer was was trying to make. And I have heard that conspiracy theory a number of times over the years. And, uh, you, you know, I, I have two. And I've always been kind of back and forth on it. Right. Yeah, me too. Um, but of all people, my father was talking about it. And my dad's not a conspiracy nut, you know. Mm-hmm. But he you know, when we were we were talking about World War II history, the last time I was over at his house... And in addition to believing that uh, the government killed Patton um, because he was just too much of a liability after World War II, especially, you know, saying things like, I can start a war with Russia and make it look like their fault. Uh, 
he was just like, and you know, and, and I'll never forgive the fact that they knew that Pearl Harbor was going to happen and they let it happen. And it was just like, well, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I mean, some, I mean, most conspiracy theorists are like, you know, living out in the desert with a bunch of cats claiming the CIA is going to kill them. So even the normal looking ones seem to believe in most of the conspiracies. So when, when a guy who's pretty rational otherwise starts talking about it, maybe it's something to look into. Right, exactly. I mean, I think that there's a certain amount of logic to some of the assertions that people make. But yeah, I, I, go, I go back and forth on that yeah. as well because... You don't want to believe it. it, it it's pretty sinister. You know, it's it's a pretty sinister thought that, you know, someone would allow something like that to happen on the off chance that we would suddenly be involved and that would that would be the thing that would help snap us um out of our uh our depression and also, you know, unite the country against a common front. That is exactly what happened though. So yeah, you know, it, it's it's something to think about. But I, I don't, you know, as much as sometimes, you know, I, I like a good conspiracy theory as much as the next guy. And I do kind of sort of half-ass subscribe to some that I'm sure that some people would look at and go, wow, that's just crazy. But in this particular case, I don't know if it's so much that I don't believe it or, as you say, I just – I don't want to believe it. You know what I mean? I, I think there's sometimes you have to just admit that – uh yeah, I'm in denial about this because I can't handle the truth, you know? <laughs> I will say this, though. Uh, I would believe that FDR knew about Pearl Harbor and let it happen more than I would believe that W knew about 9-11 and let it happen. Mm-hmm. And, and the the difference there is the time period in which it happened I could believe a secret like that in 1941. Right. I could believe that there were people, all of the people involved were like, okay, we're doing this. It's for the good of the country. Don't ever talk about it. And they wouldn't. With how we are as a society today, you couldn't keep that secret. Right. You know? So I, uh, somebody, you know, would have uncovered it. So... Yeah, I mean, that may be a weird stance to take, but uh, it's, I totally, that's totally what I believe in, so. Right. Exactly. There's one last note here. It uh, covers the the part here with uh, Captain uh, Cactus Ass, as I like to call him. Captain Cactus Ass. (laughs) It says, why was Santa Barbara, California, the site of the Japanese invasion on Earth X? Because writer-editor Roy Thomas stumbled across an astonishing true story as to why, on our Earth, a small oil field uh, there was shelled by a Japanese sub on February 23, 1942. As related in this flashback in number 34, a Japanese tanker captain really did fall into a cactus while visiting it in the late 1930s. He was offended by America's, uh, American workers' laughter. When war came, he commanded a sub and lobbed a few shells at the very oil field, though they did little damage. That incident also influenced scenes in Steven Spielberg's 1979 comedy film, 1941. Roy Thomas even used the actual name of the man and his vessel, which I cannot pronounce, 
Um, and yeah, that was pretty much it. But I think that's cool. I think that that's cool, both that it was a real thing and it influenced elements not only of this story, but of uh, Spielberg's 1941. I think that's uh, that's pretty neat. That's funny as hell. It is funny, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I guess I guess the, the, the cautionary tale there is be careful who you laugh at because one day they may have command of weaponry. <laughs> well, I've always... And we'll, and oh, I'm get sorry. back at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've always been a big fan of, uh, you know, you can't make this stuff up kind of stories, you know? Yeah. And, and this is one of those instances <laughs> where, yes, it's in a comic book and, and comic books can get really silly and all, but it, it's just made that much more interesting by the fact, nope, this particular one is actually real. This happened, you know? So as as ridiculous as it is, it's true. That's kind of cool. That makes me laugh. So what do you got on this one, Mike? Um, Not much and not a whole lot of good, unfortunately. And, and as I was reading this yesterday in, in preparation for, you know, recording tonight, I uh, I was thinking, you know, when, when we started the storyline, I was like, I was like, yeah, I'm so glad we're getting to the storyline. It's so awesome. I love it so much. And I and maybe the first time I read it, I felt that way. This time through, for some reason, I'm just not feeling what's going on. It's not that it's a bad story. I mean, it's no half set disguises himself as an alien and you know, <laughs> takes up a couple weeks of our life um, discussing it. And I, and I like all the characters involved in this one because we have Neptune Perkins, we have Tsunami. Uh, you know, we have Firebrand learning how to fly. We have Johnny Quick, Liberty Bell's new costume. We have Earth X. We have Baron Blitzkrieg. It's like all of the ingredients are there, but it's like when you get a bunch of ingredients to make your favorite meal, and for some reason the cooking thing goes off wrong, and it doesn't end up tasting mm-hmm. as good as you as you would want it. It's not that it's a bad story. I just overall am not caring for it. And I may change my mind next week when we cover the final part of this because I do like the fight that happens in that issue. Right. Um, See, I thought we were going to get that fight this issue. So <laughs> probably would have improved things. Um, I, I agree with you. I like the, the, the banter between Johnny Quick and Neptune Perkins. Uh, I do like the fact that he doesn't think of himself as a superhero. He's he's like I'm a would be writer, you know, going after the uh, going after the Japanese WTF. So um, Johnny Quick is a, is a hothead in this, and it really works out well for him as a character. It really gets him and Neptune Perkins in trouble, and it's why I love the scene where they're revived. And they're tied up together, and it's just like these two guys don't like each other, and now they're 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 forced to have to work together, and that's on a dramatic level. That's kind of cool. Uh, until I read the notes in the All Star Companion, and and all that, I really thought that the whole thing about the guy falling on a cactus was a really stupid reason for him to want to attack. <laughs> and then I'm like, wait a second, that really happened? Okay, I've got to completely change my mind about that because that's funny as hell now. <laughs> so, um, I do like seeing all of the Freedom Fighters again. I like the fact that we're getting little hints of Our Man's Addiction I just 
thought that the fight scene with the Freedom Fighters wasn't as exciting as it could have been. Right. I mean, last week, or last month, uh, comic book-wise, you know, we had this really epic fight where Uncle Sam picked up a chain gun and started hitting people with it. <laughs> and here it's, hey, the Ray traveled a beam of life and socked Baron Blitzkrieg in the jaw and then got his ass handed to him. And, you know, the the Red Bee's major contribution is, I've got a few bees left in my belt buckle, leading to my favorite quote of the of the issue. <laughs> Poor old Red Bee. On either Earth, that's a pretty flimsy gimmick for a mystery, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I basically what she says is, I'm a hot girl with big boobs and a light ray, and I'm still a much better hero than this guy. <laughs> so, um, I think this is the whiniest we have ever seen the Spectre. He's just so damn complainy. They're like, why won't you help me? I, I know this is my fault, but... God, are you there? I know. I, that's the my favorite part. Is he keeps going. Uh, God, can, uh, a hand here, please. <laughs> Hello, God. Are you there? It's me, Specter. I just awesome. got my period, and I need to know what it's all about. <laughs> There's a specific reference that only a certain percentage of the audience is going to get. Um, I do think it's very amusing that. The human bomb is knocked back and ends up blowing up his own teammates. Because, <laughs> no, because one of the cool moments is that Baron Blitzkrieg gets blinded and goes ape. I mean, it's just great because he never wants to be blinded again. Proving that this is the Baron Blitzkrieg from Earth. Dude, it's like opinion. you're reading right off my note page. Cause that... so, <laughs> so I like that, but it's just like the rest of the fight, eh, not so much. Uh, I do like, though, that Baron Blitzkrieg is the one that basically calls Our Man a freaking addict. That's that's kind of cool. Um, I like the fact that Tsunami is taking total responsibility for the fact that she just killed her father. That's, I was expecting denial on that, but nope, she owns up to it, and I think, it's, I think she's a better character for it. Um... The ending was pretty cool. I I did like the massive explosion. I'm just not feeling the story as a whole. And I, and I can't figure out why. You know, usually I can sit here and go on and on about why I don't like something. It's not that it's boring. It's just... Maybe... <laughs> Maybe I just remembered it being better than it was. And there's a certain level of disappointment there. So, um... Not the not the best issue of All Star Squadron, but definitely not the worst. And again, I'm holding final judgment on everything until next next time when we when we see the conclusion to this. Because one, I love the cover to that issue, and two, it's it's more Baron Blitzkrieg um, being awesome. So that's all I have. Cool. I uh, I likewise don't have a whole lot of notes on this particular issue. Um, I already said that I didn't. I wasn't really crazy about the cover. Um, there's several. Um, well, maybe it's not several. Maybe it's only two. I'm, I'm not sure. But there's at least two two-page spreads in the book. And the first one, when it came upon me, 
you know, w- without there being any directional arrows, I didn't realize that it was actually a two-page spread. You know. Oh yeah, and, I know and exactly it, what you're talking about. Yeah, it's very awkward. They really needed to put a directional arrow for okay. You know, this this actually continues all the way across this page to the other page before you go on to the bottom of you know the original page. It's weird. It's a very you know, it's nice that they were using the full two pages and, you know, this framing technique, but when you're not prepared for it and you're reading in a traditional comic book style, it's very jarring. Um, I forgot to write that down, but yeah, when I first read that page, I went down on the page right. and not across. And I'm like, did I miss something here? Oh, turns out, yes, I did, in fact, miss something here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really felt like they needed to to throw that in there that, you know, that the, the page layout had changed. Because that's essentially what happened. Yeah, on one hand, it's, it's a daring thing to do. And when you finally see how it's supposed to be read, it's kind of cool. But yeah, most of the time I hate when I see the arrows. This time it's like, guys... Yeah, that 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 would have been a yeah, good idea. Kind of needed it, yeah. Or you know, it's, you don't have to to be real obtrusive with it. You know, make make that, you know, make one of the panels arrow shaped or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. just you know something to indicate where your eye is supposed to follow, rather than, as you say, you know, you you start reading the bottom of the page and then you're all confused as to you know what just happened here. You know, this this jarring transition. And there there were a couple of them in this issue. There were at least two, maybe three of them. And they were all awkward like that. Um, had the same note about the uh, flimsy gimmick uh, from uh, Phantom Lady. And I really like that panel, uh, the panel of Phantom Lady in that, uh, you know, when she's saying that as well. She looks, uh, she looks very nice in that panel. Yes, she does. <laughs> her and her girls. Um, I had the same note as well about the Baron. You know, basically, so this is supposedly the same Baron. I just want to know what was he doing on Earth X? Because that means he discovered parallel Earths before the heroes did, which I think is very interesting. And how does that work? How did he get there? How did, you know, I want to know these things. I want to know how did he discover this other Earth? How did he make the transition? There's a story there somewhere. If this is indeed the same Baron from earlier issues. I hope we get that story. I hope we're not just left in the dark about it. I, but I honestly don't remember. Um, let's see. I, I like the thing with Johnny and Neptune. Um, it did feel by the end of the issue that maybe they were starting to kind of come around. I, I kind of hope not. I hope that that tension continues between the two of them. I, again, I don't remember if it does or not. Um, I found it interesting that the specter finally figured out that he was the one that caused this crisis with the two earths coming together. And I can't remember how that resolves. So that's interesting as well. Um, I like as well, the, uh, the beginnings of the little subplot with our man and the, uh, the Miraclo addiction. Cause I remember that goes on for quite a while, but I always found that a really interesting idea, you know, that he has to keep playing with the formula and, and things like that. Um, that was really about it, to be honest with you. I thought it was a good issue. I liked the art very much, although I will agree that it seemed stiffer mm-hmm. in this issue than it did somehow last issue, which I thought was kind of odd. 
I, I think the problem with this issue, because I, I agree with just about everything you said about it. Um, I think I liked it a bit more than you did, but the problem with it is that, you know, you, you had this slam bam opener to this story. And I think we're about to get back to the slam bam here in the next issue. This one, it's kind of almost like a placeholder issue. It's like, it sort of progresses the story a little bit, but not much. I mean, you've got all the all the characters in place. You've got you know great settings and set pieces and all this stuff, but not a lot really happens. You know, they sneak aboard a sub and they get captured, and there's a lot of dialogue, and there's the goofy thing with Captain Cactus Ass, and you know we we check in with the Spectre, and yep, he's still holding the the Earths apart, and we check in with the with the Freedom Fighters. Yeah, they're still uh, dealing with Baron Blitzkrieg, and. You know, we go back and forth between the Earths. Yeah, they're still going to bomb Santa Barbara. And that's pretty much it. And it's like, well, we were already here at the end of the last issue. Progress the story already. And, so. and the Red Bee still sucks. So right. <laughs> I really feel bad being so mean to that character. But the fact that he's a redhead makes it feel like, you know, like all the, the picking on Jimmy Olsen, which somebody uh, over on Facebook... Um, I think it was Jay Ferguson. Was it Jay Ferguson who uh, who asked us or asked or I don't know if he included you in that comment? Um, was this like why do you guys don't why do you guys hate Jimmy Olsen so much? He's like I can see Johnny Thunder, but what about Jimmy Olsen? So, um, there's so. no easy answer to that question, but the short answer would be because he sucks. Um, that's pretty much what it comes, you know, what it all boils down to essentially with me is like, I just, I don't know. There's something about that character that just annoys the hell out of me. It really does. But, uh, I'm going to get into that more one of these days. Cause one of the, one of the planned stories that I eventually want to do for, uh, for my Superman show is, uh, is actually an issue of, Jimmy Olsen, believe it or not. It's actually uh, one of my favorite old comic book stories from when I was a kid. And uh, I, I got a, a trade not long ago that was you know reprinting a bunch of Superman stories. And I was reading that story going, oh, I remember this. I have this issue. And I was reading the story and just thrilling to it all over again. Got to the end of it and realized... That's a Jimmy Olsen story, and I actually like this story. So you know, I don't, I don't, I don't totally hate the character. It's just at the end of the day, it's like, why would this guy be Superman's pal? You know, it's like he's kind of a pain in the ass in well, a lot of ways. What I wrote, um, and, th- and this has more to do with like the pre-crisis Jimmy than anything else, right? Is, yes, uh, is to me. Jimmy Olsen's supposed to be our character. He's supposed to be us for Superman. You know, you see your, you know, you're Superman's pal. You can't be Superman, but man, you can hang out with him and take pictures and stuff. And especially when it got into the Mr. Action stuff, it was like, not only is he Superman's pal, but he is so much more awesome than you and leads such a more interesting life that I start to hate him. It's just like, I don't care that you get to do all these cool things. Stop showing off, you D-bag. So what I really like in the in the story that I'll eventually cover is Jimmy runs across these kids that are actually the Jimmy Olsen fan club. 
And I'm thinking, if your hero is Jimmy Olsen, how badly does your life suck? I mean, I was <laughs> really. I was hanging out with a friend once, and he saw a couple of cosplayers, and it was this guy like in his late 30s, dressed as like the old school Pixie Boots Robin. And he's just like, how sad are you as as like a grown man where your your fantasy <laughs> character is the boy sidekick? <laughs> so, yeah. I get that. I totally get that. Some good ads in this issue. Oh, definitely, definitely. Are they the same ads as Infinity Incorporated, though? No, they are slightly different. In oh, well, then games. we need to talk about them. You're going to want to talk about the one on the inside cover, so I'll let you take it away, oh, sir. It's the Superpowers ad with the the Wave 1 of the, of the line with Hawkman, the Joker, Wonder Woman, Batman, Aquaman, the Penguin, Superman, Lex Luthor... The Flash, Brainiac, Green Lantern, and Robin. And I am very proud to say that at one point, I owned every single one of these action figures. Oh, really? Yes, I did. I had I had a near-complete run of Superpowers figures. Wow. Um, didn't get a lot of the Wave 3 figures. Uh, definitely never got a Captain Marvel. But apparently that thing was a bitch to find anyways. But um, I'm actually holding the Robin one in my hand because I just remembered that he was standing on my desk where I'm where I'm recording from at the moment so I just took him down he's awesome I, I love the cape on him and everything mm-hmm. somewhere I still have a Wonder Woman and somewhere in a house we used to live in in Georgia I believe that there is still a Green Lantern lodged in the uh, in the toilet uh, line because Scotty when he was very little decided to turn Green Lantern into Stinky Diver and flushed him down the commode. The, uh, that, that's both amusing that's, and sad at the same is. time. <laughs> um, the, um, the thing about the Superpowers collection that I absolutely love is that it had a great catchphrase. Who wins? Who loses? You decide. Coming from the farthest reaches of the universe to challenge the worst villains on Earth are the most powerful heroes ever in the battle of the superpowers collection. Can it be the supermobile on the attack, the Lexor 7 armed with kryptonite, but the supermobile repel those deadly rays? You bet. Ready for battle. Activate Ram. New from Kenner's superpowers collection. Vehicles and figures with power action, each sold separately. Flying lessons for Penguin, fish bait for Luther. Can the supermobile defeat the Lexor 7? You decide. And I love that concept. It's just like they're telling kids, hey, you have the adventure. Go for it. And, you know, it's Kenner, so it's the same people that did Star Wars. These people know how to sell action figures at this point. Mm -hmm. The fact that most of these look like they were designed by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez doesn't hurt either. Right. Um, so, or George Perez, you know, whoever you want to say, but I, but the, uh, the artwork on the, the blister cards was always, uh, Garcia Lopez. So I think Aquaman totally looks like there should be a Vienna sausage on the end of that trident. (laughs) Joker is like a jackass on a message board first. So, uh, I think that Brainiac figure is still one of the coolest action figures I've definitely. ever seen. He's really cool looking. 
and the one that my mom took from me at one point and went, hey, this looks like the Terminator. Mm-hmm. Um, the power armor Lex Luthor. The Hawkman figure... Hawkman figures are just odd in general, but I uh, really like the Flash. What I, what, when I got these, uh, finally, uh, in the Christmas of 85 is when I got the bulk of my Superpowers collection. The, the back of them, kind of like G.I. Joe... Uh, they had like little cards that you could clip out and keep and it had their secret identity right. and their powers. The one with the flash always kind of fascinated me because that's where I found out that the flash can run so fast. It's like he's flying and I'm like, okay, so I can make the flash fly like Superman and it works. So, uh, I didn't get green lantern till late in the game, but it's still a really cool green lantern figure. So, mm-hmm. God, I love this super. I I will talk for hours about this, so we need to move on because um, I love the superpowers, and we're going to see this ad again and again and again. I'm amazed that I do not have a copy of this. Uh, there's an ad here: free collector's edition first issue Batman comic book when you mail in three proofs of purchase from Oreo uh, cookies. And it's a reprint of Detective 27. I'm amazed I don't have that because I always took advantage of stuff like this when I was a kid. I've got umpteen different versions and variants of action number one reprints from taking advantage of offers like this. So I'm surprised I never got the uh, Detective 27 one because I did get the um, the serial version of uh, Untold Legend of the Batman. Uh-huh. But uh, it's weird. I, I I don't know why I never got. If I ever see it around at like a fifty cent bin or something, I'll have to pick it up just to have it. Well, it's interesting because the kid's holding Detective Comics number twenty seven, but the text says you can get this collector's edition first issue with the original three stories introducing Batman, Robin, and the Joker. And I'm like, that's not what was in right. Detective yeah, twenty seven, yeah. but yeah. still, those are three great stories to right. have. So it's so, uh, reprinting uh, Batman number one right? with the Joker and Detective twenty seven and thirty eight for uh, mm. for that. On the next page, we got a gotta get a grit, <laughs> gotta get a grit, and a Swamp Thing ad. I like this Swamp Thing ad because it's got that beautiful uh, beset. I think this is beset art here. This is a plant, a vegetable, a muck encrusted echo of a man. That's all he ever was. That's all he'll ever be. It started with the anatomy lesson, the sensational tale where he learned the truth about himself. And he doesn't like it. He doesn't like it at all. That's actually a really nice ad. She looks like she's about to take off her dress because, okay, okay, I'll show you my breasts. Just leave me alone. <laughs> but Abigail Arcane was kind of hot, so. Played by Heather Locklear in The Return of Swamp Thing. That Boy, movie. That yeah. oh. Sucked. It was a disgrace, that movie. No wonder Alan Moore is still pissed off. I would be, too. Still need to, at some point, read the novelization by Peter David. Just to see how that went. Hmm. Because apparently he took a lot more cues from Alan Moore than the film, so... Well, the most insulting thing about that movie, I think, is that the title sequence is nothing but Swamp Thing comics written by Alan Moore. It it just shows like 
all the covers and I think there's even little pieces of artwork. I could be wrong. Maybe it's just the covers. I only ever saw the movie once and barely made it through it. But I mean, watching that title sequence, I, I just kept screaming, you know, did, did you actually like crack the cover on any of these? Did you actually read any of them? Because I mean, you know, it, it's just insulting that it shows this this parade of these beautiful covers to some fantastic comics and then it was just so far removed from anything that Moore had written in the series. I, I think the only thing that that was was paralleled was, you know, his ability to to generate himself, you know, new bodies and the the romance with Abby. And I think that was about it. The rest of it was just right out the window. But you, you liked the kids at least, right? Uh, I don't remember there being any kids. The annoying, fat, little, red-headed, white kid. With yeah, his, with I, I his, do, yeah, yeah, they sucked. I can't. I don't even remember. <laughs> Got an ad for the Joe Kubert School of Cartoon and Graphic Art Incorporated. Hmm. Uh, which, uh, that ad will... Well, not that particular ad, but an ad like that will appear again. Uh, there are still ads for the Joe Kubert School yeah. in comics. So it's nice to see that some things haven't changed. That's where Steve Bissett came out of, if I'm remembering. Yeah, correctly. I think you're right. Yeah, and Rick Veach, you're one of the first graduating class of that. <laughs> there need to be two yodelers with those big long horns at the bottom of this uh, warlord ad, going "Me cola." <laughs> Got another. Uh, if you can't send you send money from Bill Cosby. Wish Bill Cosby would stop making me feel bad. If you can't send you, send money or Jello pudding pops. <laughs> hey, girl, we'll get some pudding pops. <laughs> so, um, I think we get more figures in the Warlord figure this time. We get Demos Mikola, Mikola, Machisti. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you pronounce that, Machist. But I don't know. God, that's going to be stuck in my head for days now. Thanks a lot. <laughs> You're welcome. Is a beautiful Paris Cullens ad yes. for Blue Devil. God, I love this series. Mm-hmm. Ah, Blue Devil was awesome. That was a good book. God, it was fun. I like I Just. like Paris Cullens. I liked uh, I liked his Blue Devil stuff, and I loved his Blue Beetle stuff. I thought that was really that was good stuff. And I love this. Uh, we've made. Comics fun again. That's mm-hmm. just, uh, Somewhere I have the original promo poster for Blue Beetle, and I've got to get that thing framed and get it up on the wall because that's a beautiful piece of art. In the meanwhile column, more on that later department. It's too early to give you all of the details for, of our upcoming 50th anniversary celebration. But I can tell you that it will include as many 20 special issues of regular titles, a 50th anniversary logo which will identify these specials, 12 handbooks of who's who in the DC Universe, the previously announced History of the DC Universe maxi-series. We felt it appropriate to save this blockbuster maxi-series for this anniversary year because the changes in our universe and the startling events that will unfold within its pages will alter forever the DC Universe and provide us, excuse me, provide some wonderful stepping stones for the next 50 years. Clue, look for odd occurrences in DC titles from now till the end of the year. 
They'll provide additional clues as to who, what, where, when, and why of the DC Universe maxi-series and the 24 planned handbooks, which I think that kind of goes against something he wrote like earlier. That's weird. Uh, Bob Greenberger, who has rejoined our staff, welcome back, Bob, will assist them and Peter Sanderson spent the better part of 18 months in our library doing the research that made it all possible. That's a job I want. Yep, he got paid for a year and a half to read every DC book. Can you imagine? Yeah, I can just imagine. <laughs> I'm reading more of the of the uh what were they? The Inferior Five. <laughs> God. Just dial age for you. I can't handle it anymore. <laughs> That's dark. Um, <laughs> it's really dark. I apologize for that. We have a Moon Patrol ad for Atari. It looks like a pretty lousy game. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't very good. And on the back cover, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons video game. Which again looks more exciting in the in the promo art than the game itself, <laughs> but you couldn't do too much back then. So are we ready to take a break and then come back and uh, have me talk about Infinity Incorporated number three? I think that sounds like a solid plan. Well, then let's not do it because <laughs> why, why do anything we say we're going to? Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. Coming from the farthest reaches of the universe to challenge the worst villains on Earth are the most powerful heroes ever in the Battle of the Superpowers Collection. What's this? The dam's about to blow and take Robin with it? Who'll stop the Joker and Luther? Aquaman! Kenner's new Superpowers Collection figures with power action, each sold separately with its own mini-comic. Aquaman's down! Who can help now? A power ring, a power action punch. Defuse the bomb! Can this madness be stopped in time? You decide. Welcome back to the Tales of the Justice Society of America, and welcome to the 1980s. 1984 in particular, and this time around, Mr. Michael Bailey is going to give you the skinny on Infinity Inc. number three. 
If it's Sunday, this must be Solomon Grundy reads the cover where we have Solomon Grundy holding up, uh, or as I like to call him, Solomon Grundy wants pants too, <laughs> holding up an unconscious jade as Northwind, Nuclon, Obsidian, Silver Scarab, and Power Girl look on with a creepy looking mansion in the background. There's There seems to be like somebody in the shadows uh, between Nuclon and Obsidian too. But Does that they, house not look like the Bates house to you? Yes, it does look like the, the Bates Motel. That's awesome. Uh, this is a cover by Jerry Ordway. This is Solomon Grundy Goes Hollywood, which is part three of the Generations Saga. Roy Thomas, writer-editor. Jerry Ordway, penciler. Mike Macklin, co-inker. Co-creators all. Uh, Grundy wants pants, too. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Macklin, Rick Magar, and Bill Collins inkers, Dan Thomas co-plotter, Adrian Roy and Anthony Tallin colorists, and Cody Starchild letterer. See, we can still have the joke. In. How long do you think it's going to be before we finally do get an actual DC Comics story that's entitled Solomon Grundy Wants Pants 2? I, I, can, I can see that happening eventually. Oh, I could de- with the current crop of creators, I could definitely see that. I mean, you know, these internet phenomenon things have a way of working themselves into the books or into, you know, the the actual universes because there was that other one with with the Juggernaut that ended up working its way into X3. So it's possible. (laughs) I I would not put it past somebody, really. I mean, there was a there was a Ultimate Hulk story that uh, Jeff Loeb wrote that was called No Shoes, No Service, No Pants, uh, something like that, where the Hulk wanted to eat at this restaurant but didn't have any pants on, and who was going to make him leave. So (laughs) I can kind of see that. Anyways, we begin with Power Girl waking up in her thoroughly trashed apartment and bringing us up to speed on the whole Brainwave Jr. telling her and the rest of the newly christened Infinity Incorporated about the Ultra Humanite when they were all hit with a mind whammy. Instead of trying to find some smelling salts and a first aid kit, or maybe even shaking them a little until they wake up, Power Girl decides the best way to bring the Huntress and Star Spangled Kid around would be to pick them both up and fly them around Gotham City. Good going, PG. The Huntress, and especially the Kid, don't take too kindly to this, and soon they are back at Power Girl's place drinking OJ uh, orange juice, not like athlete (laughs) when suddenly jade obsidian (laughs) brainwave jr nuclon fury and silver scarab pop back into the apartment in a flash of green light after some argument about who is going to tell the story of wtf happened brainwave jr finally brings power girl and the rest up to speed Turns out that the Ultra-Humanite of World War II made contact with the Ultra-Humanite of the present, Brainwave Jr. accidentally patched into them when they were looking for his father. When the ape floored them and then lured lured the Infinity Incorporated to Mount St. Helens, where they were fooled into entering a time-traveling capsule and then sent to 1942, where everyone but Jr. was taken over by the Ultra-Humanite. Being something of a history buff, Brainwave Jr. got into contact with Jonathan Law, which got him to contact with the All-Star Squadron, and soon the events of All-Star Squadron issues 21 through 25 and annual number 2 played out. Which you can hear like 10 episodes ago. (laughs) 
When the Time Lost Heroes finally returned to the proper year, they had to act like homeless people and sleep under a bridge because Jade was all tuckered out. Still trying to figure out this scene. Why the son of wealthy Arth- well, excuse me, why the son of wealthy archaeologists didn't pony up some money for cab fare or at least a hotel is anyone's guess. I can no prize that. Okay, very good. I look forward to that. They don't have well, pockets. <laughs> A lot of questions are left unanswered, like how in the heck did the JSA not recognize them? And what about the modern-day ultra-humanite? They decide to check in with the JSA and head to Hector's house, where they are told by his mother that Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Robin, the Atom, and Hawkman all answered an urgent summons by Superman, leaving the rest to hang out at the halls because apparently Dr. Midnight and Wildcat have no heirs in this team. I mean, have no families of their own. Albert calls his mother, who has 80s hair, and then Lyda calls a cranky-looking Steve Trevor, who looks like he is about to kill himself Hemingway-style before the phone rang. (laughs) Apparently, he hasn't heard from his wife, Lyda's mother, either, and heads out to look for her in a really awesome scene. Meanwhile, Infinity Incorporated heads for California, Along the way that we learn that Star Spangled Kid is pretty well off since discovering that he was still the heir to the Pemberton fortune, which almost got wiped out when it financed Strike Force. All of this happened in All-Star Comics number 71, which we covered in episode 13 or 14 of this show uh, back in March of 2009. Wow. It's almost two years ago, dude. Wow. Jesus. And I didn't have the specific episode number because uh, Lipson's being kind of cranky about episodes and stuff. So the group heads to Stellar Studios, which was the only part of the fortune that the Star Spangled Kid cared about because apparently having a lot of money is meaningless to him. The studio is set up kind of strange because apparently the city of Los Angeles owns the land. But he owns the studio, which I'm sure will never come up again. The Infinidors, which is a name I hate, but I think that's what they actually start referring to them Right, yeah. Uh, The Infinidors tour the studio, and along the way we discover the kid's adopted sister, Mary, the girl of a thousand gimmicks, is the mother of Brainwave Jr., which means a cute redhead had sex... With an ugly hydrocephalic-headed supervillain. I'm going to let that one sink in a minute for everybody. Once again, it's like you're reading my notes because I had the same thing. It's like, I really want to get to the bottom of that because I just got to know, did she go into that willingly? Did he, like, you know, use his mind powers to create, like, a, you know, like a Tom Selleck appearance? What What's going on with that? Because that's just freaky, now, man. Things turn ugly in a hurry when Solomon Grundy Once Pants 2 shows up and attacks. Apparently, a voice in his head told him to head to the studios, and he was grabbing a nap when the Infinidor showed up and started making a racket. Soon it is Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andy Leyland, all rights reserved, as the Infinidors try to take out Grundy and do a serviceable job of it. Nuclon even trades blows with the monster until he is nearly killed by Grundy. 
Northwind finds his globless gun, his people's sole weapon, when Power Girl shows up and drops a wall on the creature, showing that the gun and Northwind are pretty useless. <laughs> this gives the team the chance they were looking for, and Jade finally wraps the creature in a green bubble, and the fight is over. They decide to take Grundy to where Northwind is from, and soon Northwind, Jade, and Obsidian are off to reprint <laughs> land. The land of suck. The rest of the Infinidors discuss the voice that Grundy mentioned and believe that it may have something to do with the Ultra-Humanite. The kid decides that the first order of business for Infinity Incorporated will be getting to the bottom of this. Meanwhile, somewhere in the American West, a green creature is stalking the... Oh, wait, wait, sorry, that's the wrong comic. Meanwhile, somewhere in the American West, the Adam, Hawkman, and crew travel to the cave where Superman said to meet them. They enter the cave and wonder why Superman didn't want to meet them outside when suddenly a wall of the cavern falls away, the raging waters of an underground river engulf the heroes, drowning them. Yes, dear listeners, the five heroes are quite dead. And their murderer is none other than... Superman! Ha, ah, no pulse. They're all dead as doornails, all right? Even Wonder Woman, the strongest of the lot. And now that I've disposed of my esteemed Justice Society comrades, I can finally do what I should have done over half a century ago when I first discovered I had superpowers. Namely, I can take over the entire Earth and bring it crashing down around humanity's head. Bravo, sir. Bravo. Thank you. Not as good as yours, but still very entertaining. No, that was excellent. <laughs> I like the uh, the reenactment of Superman on the at the end there. That's cool. It's a great page. It I is mean, an awesome page. I mean, this series just... It's like the series and the issue picked up at the same time. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's really kind of weird. Yes. Uh, we do have notes, thanks to the All-Star Companion... Volume 3, which, like Scott, I did not bookmark. So I'm having to flip to it myself. We have so much in common this time. I'll vamp for you. (laughs) 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 Okay, I don't want... (laughs) Uh, I keep going deeper into the series. (laughs) Good evening, friends! Uh, we are two issues away from Naked Wonder Woman. Um, awesome. Notes. Henry Hank King Jr. <laughs> as, as if your name didn't suck enough. It's the home run Hank. king of all time, right? Yeah, exactly. Reveals that his mother was Mary Pemberton, Sylvester's adopted sister, a.k.a. the girl of a thousand gimmicks, last seen in Star Spangled Comics number 90, making Brainwave Jr. the nephew of the Star Spangled Kid. I wonder if one of those thousand gimmicks was like, you know, like BJ's or something like that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Bachelor's Doc Midnight, Green Lantern, and Wildcat are spending the holidays at Hall Manor with Hawkman's wife, all alone in the manor. I'm just, I'm not suggesting anything with that. <laughs> That whole end thing there was mine, folks. Uh, Stellar Studios was the site of the Justice Society's battle against the villain Evil Star in All-Star Comics number 44, December 1948, January 1949. 
By an odd coincidence, Solomon Grundy had also appeared on the cover of the third issue of All-Star Squadron. How are, they, how are you going to keep him down in the swamp? In his fourth and final Golden Age appearance, The Green Lantern Tale and Comics Cavalcade number 24, Solomon Grundy had inexplicably gained considerable intellect, probably by virtue of a different scripter than originator Alfred Bester. By his return to comics in the 60s, though, Grundy had mercifully, mercifully reverted to being a semi-articulate marshland monster. I, I disagree with the mercifully... Because sometimes, you know, like in that Brad Meltzer opening arc of Justice League of America, I loved the intelligent Solomon Grundy. I thought that was a neat take on the character. I like uh, how eventually in Starman, James Robinson would uh, kind of explain why we have seen different incarnations of Grundy over the years. And I bought that. I I thought that was really cool. No, I liked it too. In number three, a quintet of JSA are supposedly drowned in the raging, psych-altering underground river of Kohaha. <laughs> Kohaha, which is making its first resurgence since 1947, the time at the hand of no less than Superman, the very guy who diverted the course of the so-called Stream of Ruthlessness back in All-Star Comics number 36. And that is it for the notes. Sweet. What do you got, Scott? Uh, okay, I already commented about the cover. That totally does look like the Bates Mansion to me on the cover. Um, I wonder if that was intentional because so much of this story takes place. You know, the battle with Grundy takes place in a um, movie studio lot. If if this was a nod to like Paramount Pictures or something like that. Um, page five. Would somebody please smack Brainwave Junior because he's just being a on this page. <laughs> Um, pages five and six. Um, I'm sorry. It just has to be said. You know, can we please recap this story, say three or four, or a dozen more times? I, it just never gets old, really, honestly. <laughs> Jesus Damn, Christ, man. man. You know, my original intention was to, um, to kind of read it like it was the end of, a like a, a, a murder mystery where the guy was explaining it like this and you were down there, but you wanted to do this. So. <laughs> I, never, I couldn't just figure it out. But, uh. Okay, so. the uh, the big one for this issue, page seven, panel five. They slept under a friggin' bridge in Central Park on Christmas yep. Eve, no less. Yep. C- come, come on, come on, really, really. I mean, wow. It's it's really interesting to see a writer kind of get to a point where he really doesn't know what to do. And I'm not insulting Roy Thomas by any stretch of the imagination by saying that. Because Roy Thomas has proved time and again that he is an excellent writer. Yes. That doesn't mean he bats a thousand. And this is one right. of those times right. where it's just like, why couldn't he have just said, and then we showed back up at home? What is with this scene of them sleeping under a freaking bridge while Brainwave Jr. keeps watch. I mean, I would buy this in small pieces. You know, they're exhausted after a battle. I get that. Okay. 
they're uh they don't have any money okay i get that okay you know um you know any any set of extenuating circumstances but when you add it all together it's winter you know they just got back um as you pointed out you know at least one of the members is is the son of rich parents you know um it's christmas the big thing for me is that it's christmas eve I'm sorry, dude. I'm not sleeping under a friggin' bridge on Christmas Eve. I'm going to find somewhere to be, you know? <laughs> Would have been great if they went to, like, a homeless shelter. Yeah, exactly. I mean, come on. <laughs> as, 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 as awful as that sounds, yeah, I mean, at the very least, go indoors. You yeah, know? Exactly. go to a Go to a homeless shelter or – I mean, because, you know, one of them does comment later on that they could have frozen to death. Now, as it turns out – Lame ass Junior, you know he he was using some mind whammy. Lame ass Junior. I'm sorry, I just don't like brain. I don't like him, and I don't like Norda. Um, he was using some mental power to like hold their body heat in. Or I mean, come on, it's it's double. It's a stupid double talk explanation, but I just it. That's the part of the story that you know I can buy. You know. Nuclear powered giants and green women and and the stupid bird guy and the, you know Walking Dead Especially swamp monster, women. but it's the superhero sleeping under a bridge that's 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 too much for me in this story. That that part is just patently ridiculous. I'm sorry. And like you, I'm not trying to insult Roy because you know the man's a god in this business. But you know, like you say, now, you know they they don't always hit him out of the park. Um, in this case, not even out of Central Park, but. So anyway, nice. <laughs> last page, panel seven. Uh, excuse me, page seven. What did I just say? Last panel, page seven. Um, just ignore uh, Power Girl's question, everybody. She she wants to know what about the modern day ultra humanite, and they just carry on the conversation as if she hadn't even spoken. I found that extremely rude, especially when she could whoop all their asses combined. I thought that was you know, pretty pretty daring to just pretend she hadn't even spoken. Uh, let's see. <laughs> I love page nine. Actually, this makes up for the whole sleeping under a bridge thing, in my opinion. You know, I mean, we have kind of beat a dead horse to the fact that neither one of us cares much for Hawkman in All-Star Squadron or Infinity Inc. so far. So I have zero problem with all the Infinitors running the hell out of Hawkman's phone bill. (laughs) I think that's hysterical. No, seriously, there was this girl that I was kind of thinking of asking out back in UCLA. Can I I give her a quick phone call? Because first you got Al calling Florida, and then you got Lita calling, where does she call? Um, Washington, D.C., I would assume. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I love this. You know, they they no sooner show up than they're making long distance phone calls. Uh, let's see, Paige jumping way, way, way ahead. Although, you know, I missed a note here, but I was noticing this as I was playing along with your synopsis and flipping through the book. There is a great panel. Uh, it's the next to last panel on page 14 where Hector Hall is getting all horny for Lita. Yeah. He's got his hand around her neck, and he has got the most leering. (laughs) That's just creepy, but it's also awesome at the same time. Um, Okay, so jumping way ahead, page 18. I love, uh, let me see, I got to find the actual, I got to set this up a little bit. 
because I've got the note, but I want to be able to. Oh yeah, it's where uh, Nuclon is belting Solomon Grundy, and Huntress is saying she goes, but he's real, a walking, talking Frankenstein monster. And Nuclon walks up and just socks him one and says, well, welcome to the Atomic Age, Karloff. I, I like that. I thought that was a great, great line. Um, now, I know that this note doesn't have quite the same impact after the note that you just read out of the uh, All-Star Companion Volume 4, but I think it still bears saying, without knowing the mystical nature of the water, my note for page 22 was... The JSA, taken out by a flood. I, I just thought that that was completely silly. I mean, somebody wake up Green Lantern and remind this dumbass that he has a magic ring that could, like, hold back the stem of the water, right? I mean, like, come yep. on. I mean, that's just silly. But, yeah, I forgot that it does turn out to be, like, you know, some mystic whammy river the thing. stream of ruthlessness. Oh, for God's sake. Oh, I love it. Um, Love it. Every shortcoming, shortfall, misstep, goofiness, whatever in this book is, if you'll forgive the pun, washed away by Superman on page 23. This makes up for everything else because this is friggin' awesome. The art's beautiful. I love not only the art and, and everything, but more than anything, I like what he's saying. I just love this. He said, what I should have done over a half a century ago, namely take over the entire earth. And, you know, granted this was written, you know, years and years and years before, but it pulls me back to that Superman King of the world story that I just love so much in the post crisis era. I like this. I, I just, there's something about, Superman coming to the conclusion that, you know what, I'm Superman, god damn it, I'm going to run the show. I like that. <laughs> it's just a storyline I never get tired of, so I like this. Now, I know that there's extenuating circumstances, and we're going to get the real reason why you know this is all going down. But for the moment, I'm just enjoying the ride. This, this is cool. You know, when Superman shows up, especially when he shows up at the end of the story... I'm I'm all about that. You know, you you've you've roped me in. I'm hooked. I'm I'm ready for the next issue. <laughs> um and then let's see. I had one last note, but we kind of touched on that already. Uh I I really got to know. Did Mary <clears throat> go into the thing with Brainwave Senior willingly? You know, I mean, is she into big-headed freaks or something or what's I I just want to know what's the story here. Here's the thing, and, and this this is how I'll try to no-prize it. There is um, – what I see happening is somehow, some way, these two people came into each other's lives. I don't know how. I don't know if she they were fighting and they got trapped somewhere or whatever. But something about Brainwave, his personality, maybe it was a moment of vulnerability where he was just explaining why he does things, you know, and all of the, you know, his childhood or whatever. Hung like a horse, yeah. (laughs) 
the one hung like a horse. <laughs> yeah. You know, something attract made him attracted attractive to her. Is he rich? Uh, I think he does have money. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, but I don't want to make her seem shallow because she comes. Well, she does. Well, come she is a woman. I mean, come on. <laughs> oh God, I'm so far away from you right now. <laughs> Come on, there's no women listening to this shit. <laughs> we can say whatever we want to. No, I'm kidding. But uh, something, of. you know, just, you know, <laughs> maybe it's just as simple as they went through a period where they were arch enemies and the tension got to them one night. <laughs> you know, whatever weirder things have happened. The Name one. I dated in high school. Okay, All right, I'll give you that. <laughs> so, because yes, I I've got, met you, and that yeah, that is quite the feat. I you know, right up into including my wife, most of the women I have dated in my life were much skinnier than I was. <laughs> so, sometimes maybe a girl just likes hydrocephalic heads. Well, you know, as a, as a man who admittedly married way out of his league, um, yeah. I got your back, brother. Yeah, I, I, I can buy that. No prize, I guess. He um, punched out of his weight and managed to win. <laughs> or maybe she was just a big whore. <laughs> maybe she gave it up to, like, every villain she fought. And Brainwave, Brainwave's just the one that knocked her up. There's the less glamorous version of that story. Oh, I meant to mention, if this is the original uh, bag for this <coughs> issue, um, there, it has the original uh, Titan $2 sticker on it. So evidently I got this from Titan for for two bucks at some point. Titans? Like Titans Titans? Yeah. The, one of the, I, I'm not sure which one, but one of the Titans. That's where I bought mine. Oh, cool. <laughs> oh, that's Very weird. cool. Um, we ready for my notes? Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. You might have notes. Yeah, let's let's do that. Um, page one, I uh, I have made kind of a, almost a stand-up routine over the past ten years or so of complaining about uh, women being drawn in comics in kind of a sexually provocative way. So I'm going to be very <laughs> hypocritical here for a moment. I, I'm I'm sorry. The the shot of Power Girl on the first page, yes. kind of bent over, is kind of hot. Yes, so. it is. And the fact that it's not always like that makes it even hotter. Um, but at the bottom of that page, the the body language between Power Girl and and well, he can't have much body language because he's uh, unconscious. But the way she's looking at Star Spangled Kid, there's a lot of affection there, and he had a thing for her, and she may have had a thing for him. Um, so I, I kind of like this little bit of silent characterization that they may not have even meant. I'm just reading into it. Um, page two, I love the artwork on this page, especially the expressions on Huntress's and Star Spangled Kid's face as they wake up and realize they're high over the city. And Power Girl looking beautiful, by the way, with a what look on her face. So right. that, that's fantastic. I love that. Um, I like the fact that we get this... <laughs> Wow, Ordway, you were like all about having Power Girl kind of like here, Star Spangled Kid. Get a look, good look at my cleavage on page four, because he's kind of leaning over that refrigerator door, looking right <laughs> down. Her shirt. Yes, he is. So I should have caught that. Uh, well, um, yeah, I'm. <laughs> I, I, 
Maybe it's because we covered the story. I don't know. The artwork's pretty, but pages five and six. Do you, we really have to explain this yet again? I know. This is like the umpteenth recap of this story. Uh, very good. Um, page eight. Um, Hector's mom's kind of hot for an older woman. She's got the white hair. It's kind of, yeah. I'm down with that. Um, who is Albert, that? Is that hot girl? Yeah, that's hot girl. Okay. Um, page nine. <laughs> wow, that's an 80s look for Albert Rothstein's mother. My God in heaven. And it looks like they're at a McDonald's. Uh, I don't know why he's, uh, isn't he Jewish? Yes. Okay, so why is he calling his mother on Christmas? Anyways. Um, I think that develops later, though. I don't think that that, okay. you know. Because there are several things with these characters that would come along years later that I'm sure. I, I'm I'm actually kind of keeping, you know, a lookout for, for things that may go counter later on, particularly with uh, with Obsidian. We'll see if you know how that develops. Page ten, very top of the page. I love Steve Trevor at this moment. Not only is he going to look for his wife, he's armed while doing it. It's <laughs> like because if I got to shoot somebody, damn it, I'm going to shoot somebody. That was great. It's probably the most interesting Steve Trevor has ever been. And yes, I'm counting the Wonder Woman television show with that. Because he wasn't a very interesting. He was movie. awesome in that animated movie, though. Have you seen that? Oh yes, he was great in that. Uh, I just picked up a, a six dollar copy of that movie. I had seen it once, but I never owned it. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about getting to see it again. Uh, I do like. Okay, we were complaining about the flashback to the Infinity Incorporated introduction into All Star Squadron. I do like that we got a flashback to All Star Comics number seventy one mm-hmm. with Strike Force and all that because it's a good place for it. It makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Sylvester Pemberton looks about eight years old in that one panel on page <laughs> twelve, but other than that, you know, it's pretty cool. Um, page thirteen, Stellar Studios looks great in this uh, high, you know, from a high vantage point shot of it. I, I, I like, I like the fact that their headquarters is an old movie studio. That's Awesome. Somebody did their homework on that right there because that that looks like an amalgam of of several old studios from from around that era. That's really cool. Page fifteen, we get a really good look at Solomon Grundy, who looks not like a Jerry Ordway character at all, and I think that's really cool. It's almost like another artist came in and drew Solomon Grundy, but I still think it's Ordway and Macklin. Uh, maybe it's a different inker on Grundy. But he looks like right out of those '60s stories, and that's that's kind of neat. I like that. It's a nice artistic touch. Um, page eighteen. I do like the shots of Grundy and Nuclon fighting, but man, he's about to rip Nuclon's head off at the bottom <laughs> of page eighteen. Page nineteen. How do you end a fight with Solomon Grundy? You drop a building on him. Way to go, Power Girl. Because uh, Northwind's like. What what this fell from my belt? A globless gun, my people's sole weapon. If only I could Oh, here comes Power Girl to do something useful. God, I suck. Um I love the fact that we finally get the full nursery rhyme here. Solomon Grundy, born on Monday, christened on Tuesday, married on Wednesday, took ill on Thursday, worse on Friday, died on Saturday, 
buried on Sunday, and that was the end of Solomon Grundy. Which was a poem, nursery rhyme, whatever you call it, that my mother would quote all the time when I was a little kid watching um, Challenge of the Super Friends. Hmm. Kind of neat. Kind of made me sad to think about it, but kind of neat. Um, <laughs> Jade, uh, Obsidian, Northwind, and Grundy are all heading to Featheria. Um, guys, I'm going to warn you all right now, this leads to a uh, reprint in the next issue, and it's really disappointing. So just a little prepping you there uh, so you're not taken aback. Because, God, it was... I hated seeing the reprint. Especially since it's a boring story. I am so sorry that you have to recap that issue, Scott. I think I'm sick that issue. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, could you cover me? Could you take the suck? I'm going to have my wife call in for me. <laughs> have your wife do the re- the synopsis. Oh, God, that would be hilarious. <laughs> She'd am be I reading this? She'd be like, really? what the hell is this anyway? Yeah, I can hear that now. <laughs> Um, Superman looks awesome on that last page, especially that middle panel where he's so evil. This was a fun issue. I think that's um, how Superman should look all the time. He's Superman, for Christ's sake. He should have that look like, yeah, I can totally just kick your ass right now. <laughs> um, the issue started off very slow. Uh, but once we hit Stellar Studios and, and and the whole back half of this book was fantastic. I loved it. I got it. I was excited. Yeah, I was poking fun at it, but it was still just such a great, great read for me. And now we're in to the interesting part of the Generation Saga. So uh, despite the reprint, good good times ahead, I promise. Mm-hmm. Mm. We also get a history of uh, Mary, the girl of a thousand gimmicks, which does leave out why she had a thing for short hydrocephalic headed men. In all seriousness, do you know if we do get anything more on that? I I don't, I honestly, I can't remember. You know, because on the one hand, you know, I, I, I don't want, you know, I don't want something crude or crass. You know, I don't want some sort of rape thing or something like that not in this era yeah but still it's like i i guess i would i would be i would be all right with something where he uh he disguised you know he pulled like a i'm trying to remember what what figure is it that would I, i guess like a like a god or a satan figure you know where they would disguise themselves so that they could zeus yeah, that sort of he thing. He turned himself into a swan. <laughs> you know? But, you know, that I mean, that's that's kind of a classic literary thing, you know, where, where you know, they would change into a, you know, a more appealing form and have their way with the earth women kind of thing. I, I could I could buy that. I could buy that a, a lot more than I can buy her uh, falling for, for him as he really appears, but... I don't know. Then again, I mean, I, I liked I liked your your angle that you know maybe she saw something in him and was be able to you know able to see beyond his big headed freakness. So you know, I don't know. Maybe he was big headed somewhere else. There you go. You never know that too. I mean, hey, any port in a storm. <laughs> so, I weirder things have happened. People have had sex in real life under more bizarre circumstances. So, I mean, look at any, maybe they were at a convention together. 
Because weird things happen at comic book and sci-fi conventions, especially like they were at Dragon Con. That's what happened. All kinds of hookups happen at Dragon Con. Yeah. I mean, you know, you see, you see this sort of thing happen in real life, you know. You got, you know, say, you know, I think Matthew Broderick's a good example. You know, he's he's not a bad-looking guy, yet he married a woman that has a horse head, you know? So, I mean... <laughs> I was about to make the horse joke if you didn't, because I was like, is he about to suggest that Sarah Jessica Parker is attractive after Hocus Pocus? Because that's a damn line, you know it. I don't know. Was she ever attractive? Uh, in Honeymoon in Vegas and Hocus Pocus. Only two, only two times I've ever seen that woman attractive. Right, if you say so. It, it it is nice though that Matthew Broderick was able to to. I mean, I wonder if he like brings carrots like home every day. <laughs> Maybe a sugar sugar cubes. Cube. Yes, <laughs> yeah, we're terrible human beings. I just want to know if she eats with a feed bag on her face. <laughs> He's like, you know what? Mia Sarah was my girlfriend of Ferris Bueller Day Off. What lottery yeah. did I lose? What happened? Because <laughs> she was hot even now. Did you see her in Birds of Prey as Harley Quinn? No. Yes, she was Harley Quinn. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. I've been meaning to go back and watch that at some point, and I just thirteen bucks at Walmart I... right now. Whole series on DVD. I'm not paying for that. <laughs> if I ever watch it, it's going to be on the free. But, uh, you know, I mean, I, I watched the pilot and thought it was mildly interesting. That series was very good in the pilot. The first, like, six-ish episodes... The first couple episodes were okay. It had a really weak middle part. And then, right when they canceled it, is when the series got really, really good. Because they brought in Clayface as a Hannibal Lecter-type character. And the whole thing with with Harley Quinn making her final move was actually really freaking cool. So it was kind of sad that it ended the way it did. And you had, uh, what's her name, as Barbara Gordon, which was just awesome. <laughs> yeah, she was, I don't remember the actress's name, but she was cute. Yeah, she was uh, she was cute in Starship Troopers too. I thought uh, the shot in the in the pilot of her as Batgirl oh. and her little dream sequence I thought was pretty awesome. Oh, she looked great in that costume. <laughs> so, well, I guess to round out this episode, we have our usual Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics yes. time machine traveling, and boy, do we have some great covers this month! What you see? Oh. Um, I like the Action Comics cover of Superman being put into handcuffs by uh, Eduardo Barreto and Klaus Janssen. That's that's a neat cover. I like that. Um, the Batman and Detective Comics of this month. I hate this story. I hate this character. It's a boxing vampire type guy. Like, <laughs> really? Wow, that sucked. It did. I'm sorry. I don't know if you remember it, but I vaguely, I vaguely. I don't. I the the Batman 372 cover has. You know, if you ever compile a list of the top five goofiest Batman covers, <laughs> that's a contender right there, baby. Mm-hmm. We have Firestorm number 24, uh, which has the preview to Blue Devil. I believe they're fi- who are they fighting in that? Oh, bite. They're still fighting. <laughs> bite my ass. Uh, <laughs> but but I, the art's by Raphael Kanan. Yeah. That's, 
good. I want to get a copy because I don't think I have a copy of this DC Comics Presents. It's uh, Superman and the Metal Men, and I'm I'm much like you. I, I think I'm a little fonder of the Metal Men, but not by much. But I was looking at the credits here, and it says that the art is by Alex Saviak, who yep. I'm kind of hot and cold on, but I like his Superman stuff. But the inker is Tony DiZaniga. I'd like to check that out. I bet you that's interesting. We have a kind of a mystery solved with Green Lantern number uh, 177. It's got a really nice Gil Kane cover. Ooh. This is the in-between between the the, the crisis management issue uh, uh, that we covered last week. It's a fill-in, it looks like, that doesn't have anything to do with it. So we may not be getting... Huh? We may not be okay. missing a chapter of the story after all. Oh, and speaking of big-headed freaks, you got uh, Hector Hammond is the guy he's dealing with, and now he's like Hector Hammond. Speaking of characters, Jeff Johns made just damn creepy. Oh my god! Do you remember that? Kind of vaguely, yeah. Yeah, he 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 wanted to basically pour through Hal Jordan's mind and 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 experience like all the times Jordan had sex. So he could. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I think I do remember that. Now that you say that, Blue that, Devil. No, oh, what? That's one of those series that I read um, mostly in CBRs, and that that's the one downside for me in, is reading things in CBRs. Is I can blow through a lot more comics that way, but yeah. then I retain a lot less. I, I can see that. I, I have I have that tendency if I read a bunch of issues at once that uh, I don't I don't appreciate it. So I'm trying to take my time more when I'm reading through things these days. Um, you know, it's been a good. I would say almost 15 years since I've read Blue Devil. Mm-hmm. But I still remember it as being an excellent mm-hmm. series, and the fir- the cover to the first issue is just great. And it's really funny that in my own personal comic collection, Blue Devil, Blue Beetle, and Booster Gold are all like right next to each other. Yep, and that's it's, yeah, it's good, folks. If you see these in the fifty cent box, and you will, uh, pick them up. Seriously, it's worth it. It was a great series. And I'm gl- and this is going to sound weird. I'm glad it got canceled before they revamped it and made it all serious and dark. Right, that's where they were headed. And I'm glad they didn't do that. Did you ever read the uh, what was the name of that series that had him and Detective Chimp and uh, Shadow Pact? Yeah. Um, it was an interesting concept. Uh, it had the Enchantress in it. Unfortunately, they did not have her in the hot witch's costume that she had in Legends. Yeah. So I kind of lost interest in her after that because I thought, wow, that, that that's a lousy costume. Uh, it was a fun series that I just lost track of. Yeah, me too. I liked uh, it friend, for a while, though. Yeah, My friend Chip loved it because it had Ragman in it, and he's got a serious love for Ragman. Yeah. So. I always liked um, Enchantress. She she was one uh, one of those characters I just kind of just kind of discovered. There was an old back issue of I don't know what the title was. Probably Adventure Comics, where uh, I, I'm trying to remember if she was with Supergirl. If I had two different issues, where it was one where she was with you know like battling Supergirl, and then there was another that was a solo story, or if it was the same story. But I remember it being where. 
where she was a big important part of the story as far as like it seemed like more of it was focused on her than on whoever she was battling or whatever. And she was a character that just kind of caught my interest, you know, but she's only ever been kind of sparsely used. And then all of a sudden she was one of the team members on that. And I thought that was, you know, it was one of the hooks for me on that. What do you think of that Jonah Hex cover? I like that. Now, this is uh, this is definitely in an era where uh, I have not read these stories yet. Because despite having a full run of the original Hex series, I actually have not read all of them. There's somewhere toward the end of the series where, where I'm still working my way through. But I like this cover a lot. It looks very interesting. And I, I find it interesting that this guy's named the Grey Ghost. Because that's uh, one of my favorite characters from Batman the Animated Series is the the one that was called the Gray Ghost who was voiced yep. by uh, Adam West. Adam West. Yeah. That's cool. New Gods number one, part of the deluxe reprint series. And uh, I recently picked up the entire original series, but I have these as well. I really like that cover of Darkseid holding the Earth. That's cool. I don't know where my love for Kirby has come from with his DC work lately, but there it is. I like that cover on uh, New Adventures of Superboy. I, this was a series I had almost a complete run of a few years back, and I'm not sure what I did with it. I don't have it anymore. But it, I, I, it was a real mixed bag. Yes, it was. But uh, I like this cover. I think that cover is actually pretty cool. I like the cover to Supergirl number 20 where Superman is showing off his massive body odor and she's trying not to tell him about it. <laughs> I like that. It's uh, Car- uh, Carmine Infantino. It's actually really good, Carmine Infantino. Yes, it is. Yes, yes, it is. Got chapter two of The Judas Contract and Tales of the Teen Titans number 43. Yeah. So, um, thriller number seven, still no Michael Jackson, very disappointing. I'm trying to remember what the hell the story was about in Star Trek number five right here. I don't remember what that, because it almost looks like Apollo, but I don't, I don't know. I have all of my action figures. They're all in my hands. Look, I can, I can play for hours. (laughs) I don't know what that's all about. Uh, Wonder Woman looks interesting. She's, uh. She, she's fighting a, an Aztec-looking villain, so look out. She's her old self again, and she means business, meaning she is about to give you a Hail Mary to the nuts. So <laughs> look on her face anyways. Like, <laughs> no, seriously, get distracted by my rope. <laughs> I'll Rochambeau you for it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not a pretty cover. Um... World's Finest, number 304. (sighs) Null and Void. Much like my interest in the title right around this time. Written by David Anthony Kraft, with art by Steve Lytle. Hmm. Interesting. Wow, Steve Lytle inked by Sal Trapani? What the (laughs) hell does that look like? I'm gonna have I wonder if I have that issue. I'm gonna have to dig that I do see. I think I think I do actually. I've gotta see that that art's gotta be very interesting. You talk about two divergent art styles. That's weird. I I'd like to I I I need to check that out. And uh that's pretty much all I got for it. What about you? Yeah, pretty much. I, I'm trying to figure out if I I know that there was a Steve Bissett Swamp Thing poster. 
And I think it may have been this cover on 25, but I'm not entirely sure. But that's an interesting cover nonetheless. That That's pretty cool. Um, but beyond that, it's funny because you brought this segment in going, oh, look at all the awesome covers. And I, I, I Sadly, I don't agree. I don't think there's very many really truly awesome covers this month. I mean, there's a few, but there's a lot of just weird and or ugly covers this this month sergeant rock looks like he's starving to death on that the cover of his he's really like gaunt faced on that it's bizarre looking brother can you spare a cheeseburger right i do like that supergirl cover though i I just blew that up after you said that and that that actually is really good because carmine infantino as much as i love the guy I'd be the first one to admit that uh, his art from this particular era is not the best of his career. But that looks sharp. I like that. Of course, it could be because uh, uh, Giordano is uh, is the inker on that, so he may have shored up the art a little bit on that. But that, that's good. I mean, Power Girl, or you know, Power Girl, Supergirl rather looks. I mean, very attractive on that cover. Yeah, she does. Um, surprisingly, for. Carmine Infanti. Yeah, because I mean, it, it was right around this same era that he did uh, the Red Tornado miniseries, and that's not pretty. I'm, I'm sorry to say, um, but he he's one of those odd artists, much like say like uh, like Gil Kane, to where you know I'll, I'll look at him on one project and go, wow, this guy's a god, and then I'll look at him on the very next project and go, wow, what the hell happened to this? This sucks. You know, so he he's he's just an odd one. You know, it's it, and it's not even so much that his art style varies that wildly. It's just sometimes he's got it and sometimes he doesn't. And it's you know, flip a coin sometimes. That's I'll agree about, with that. <laughs> that's about all I got on that. You've reached the end to another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America. You can find this show as well as an entire slew of other awesome podcasts on a wide variety of geek-related subjects from giant monsters to time lords to movie commentaries to fangirl interests at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Star Wars Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Comics Monthly Monday... And occasionally, back to the bins. Mike is on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. And From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which can be found at www.fortressofbailytube.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos. They love to hear themselves talk. More importantly, at least according to their publicist, they want to hear from you. So you can reach the guys by writing to tales of the JSA at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks network shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com. Click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf. And you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. 
and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. You can also support this show and the Two True Freaks Network as a whole when you shop on Amazon. Again, simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of that will get kicked to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening, and come back next time for another exciting episode of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. 